Years ago, I was visiting with a lady I just recently met, and her son was playing football for the Seattle Seahawks, and she was concerned uh, because she said, the boys in the locker room were telling my boy he needs to be born again. And I told him, you were born once by me, that's enough for anybody. And she was concerned because she was a devout Catholic, but she thought that they were trying to convince him of something that wasn't real or true. And so I, I said, let me see your Bible. And so I turned in her Bible to John chapter 3, and I read this. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a member of the Jewish ruling council. He came to Jesus at night and said, Rabbi, we know you're a teacher who's come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs you're doing if God were not with him. In reply, Jesus declared, I tell you the truth, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he was born again. And she was surprised to know that Jesus had said that, that this wasn't something some Protestants had made up or there was a revival going on in this, on the, in this team at the time. But she didn't know that that was in her Bible, and she was puzzled by it. What does this mean, she asked. Chuck Colson was Richard Nixon's hammerman. In 1971, he authored a sort of hit list of Nixon's political enemies, and it was said by those who knew him that Colson would walk over his grandmother if necessary. He was just not a good man at all. You can read his story online, or you can, you can read his own autobiography called Born Again. In 73, he resigned from the White House staff. He pled guilty to obstruction of justice in the Watergate scandal, and he was born again. And that last event sparked widespread derision. It was said that it was a foxhole conversion, that he was trying to reduce his sentence. And he did serve time at a federal prison in, in Montgomery, Alabama. And then three years after that, after he got out of prison, he founded Prison Fellowship, the largest prison ministry in the world. He's authored over 30 books, founded the Chuck Colson Center for Christian Worldview. And I've been to several prisons where his ministry has had a profound impact. They work in some of the worst places in the world. And Chuck finished well. He died in 2012 at age 80. He was known for his integrity and after his conversion, his kindness and his authentic faith. Now, I've read many of his books, including his autobiography, Born Again. And when it was when he first said he was born again in 73, he was mocked. And then when his book came out in 76, he was mocked again. It was widely misunderstood. And just as Jesus was misunderstood when he first coined the term, let's go back to Jesus and Nicodemus. Jesus said to Nicodemus, you can't see the kingdom of God unless you're born again. And Nicodemus said, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? And Jesus said, truly I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes. You hear its sound, but you don't where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone born of the Spirit. So he's saying, look, even the wind, this natural thing, you see it, you see its power, you feel it, but you don't see it. How much more so these things of the Spirit? And Nicodemus said, how can these things be? And Jesus answered, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. So eternal life is standing right there in front of him. If I've told you earthly things you do not believe, how can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who has ascended from heaven, the Son of Man. 
And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. And he was using that um, historical illustration of when Israel was wandering in the wilderness and they would frequently fall into sin and then judgment would come on them. In this case, it was just the horrific situation of wandering into this large area full of poisonous snakes and people were dying from this. It was a physical reality. These snakes were a real thing, but it was because of spiritual sin. And so God instructed them to fashion this bronze serpent, raise it up on a pole, and they would look to this serpent and they would be protected from being killed by these snakes. And it was pointing forward to Jesus, Jesus who would be lifted up on a cross, who would crush the serpent's head. Jesus said that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And then the famous verse, For God so loved the world, he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. So this was from John's Gospel. This fall we've been in John's letter, first letter. And today I want to focus on John's primary purpose for writing his letter. It's in chapter 5. This is a testimony. God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. And I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God so you may know you have eternal life. Now, very quickly, back to John's Gospel, chapter 20. Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples which are not written in this book. John was selective in what he presented in his Gospel because the world could have filled up the books with what Jesus did. But these are written. He picked these things so you may believe Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And today we're going to focus on two words and then two applications. The two words are believe and life. Believe. John wrote his gospel to unbelievers that they might believe in Jesus and be born again. It's just a long gospel track. John wrote his letter to Christians that having believed, they would have certainty that they have life in Christ. The false teachers that John was addressing had made the Christians feel unsettled, questioning their relationship with God because they didn't have some secret knowledge or some special experience, and this happens still. How can you be a Christian if you don't know this doctrine, this latest theological cool thing, or or you haven't had this experience? And John says, nonsense. You've believed in Christ. You've received life from him. Of this you can be certain. And so as we've seen throughout this letter, John's given them some tests or some objective criteria to establish their assurance, the doctrinal tests. Who is Jesus? The moral test. Does your life reflect Jesus? The social test. Do you love others as Jesus does? And the purpose was not so they would become more unsettled, but that they would become settled. He wasn't trying to create test anxiety, but to say, look, you are followers of Christ because you can see this. I've written so you would know. Here's the evidence. I see it in your lives. Just look. Open your eyes. Muhammad, not our Mo. But we have our, our Muhammad was, was talking last week in our class about Muhammad, the founder of Islam. He died without certainty. He lived without certainty. The very founder of Islam himself lived and died with no certainty of eternal life. Jesus wants us to have certainty, and we can. Because we don't have to wait until the end to see if the good deeds outweigh the bad. Our certainty is because of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. If we believe who he is and we receive his gift for us, we can be certain of eternal life. And so John, in his letter, gives reasons to be certain. Yes, I believe Jesus is the Son of God. He is God, man, Savior. I believe that. Yes, I'm changing. But John, I mess up a lot. Understood, John says. Remember what I said in 
in chapter 1, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful to forgive our sins and cleanse us. So yeah, you do still sin, but you confess and move on. Okay, well then I have been changed. I do want to be more like Jesus. Yes, I do love people. He's put this love in my heart, but I get impatient and annoyed and angry. I get it. But do you see yourself becoming a person who loves people more and more? I do. See, that's evidence. These are proof of life. In movies, you often hear the demand that kidnappers show some proof of life. How do we know for sure our loved one's still alive? Give us conclusive evidence. These, John writes, are the proofs of eternal life. And all three are focused on Jesus. Do you believe he is who he says he is? Do you live like he wants you to live? Are you trying to live a pure, holy life? Yeah, I am, but I failed. Jonathan, I got that. I already addressed that. But do you see yourself moving towards wanting to be more like the Lord? I do. That's proof of life. Are you loving others sacrificially? Sometimes, no, think about it. Are you in your heart becoming a person who wants the good of others? Yes, it's happening. That's proof of life. So what does John mean by believe? We don't want to get into the theological weeds on this because he, he means what common sense would tell us he means. And you can get in, you can read books on what belief means, but basically it's pretty intuitive. If I have a disease and you say you're a doctor and you say you have the cure, you can know if I believe you by whether I take the medicine or not. I filled out many reference forms for people over the years, several just this last week, and the best question they ask is, would you let this person watch your kid? If the answer is yes, okay, then you believe in this person. Believe in Jesus means in your mind you accept the fact of who he says he is. God became man to die for your sins. Have you figured it all out? No one has. But do you believe that? Then it means you act in line with what those facts tell you. Therefore, I'll trust him over myself or anyone else. I'll act on the facts of who he is. In a marriage, you come to the place you say, I believe this person is who they've indicated themselves to be. So I commit my life to him. Maybe you don't go through that intellectual exercise. But you, you have come to that conclusion. You believe in them. And so then you have a ceremony. You say, I do. And that single act of covenant commitment, I do, is followed by a million little I still do's. But there's that initial I do. I do what? I do commit to love, cherish, obey, lead till death. All because of what? Because I feel, well, hopefully you feel something at your wedding day, but hopefully your I do is not because of I feel. It's because of I believe. You believe and so you commit. What do you believe? You believe they are who they appear to be, who they say they are, and who others say they are. So I do. And belief in Jesus as a Messiah means you commit to him as he is. And who is he? He's God became man to save us. He is the singularity in human history. And every human has ever lived, one person has been exceptionally wise, exceptionally good, has shaken the world, and has claimed to be God, and backed it up with powerful actions. One person. He's God. And so I'm going to claim him as Lord of my life. I'll surrender my will to him. He is Savior. I will trust him alone to save me. I believe. Second word, what happens when I believe? I have eternal life. I'm born again, Jesus said. Notice John didn't say you will someday have eternal life. He said you may know that you do have eternal life. So whatever this life is, it's not pure future tense. It starts in the immediate present. It's not fire insurance, escape from hell when I die, though that's a really good thing. It's life that starts at conversion. I'm born again and it continues past death. 
So in this chapter, chapter 5, John ties the three tests together. In verse 1, he says, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born again. There's the belief. Everyone who loves God loves his kids. There's the love test. We know we love God and his kids when we obey him. That's the moral test. It's all wrapped up like a bow. Our kids upstairs recently sent me a series of questions. I get these on a regular basis. I get stacks of them sometimes. Aaron calls it questions from River Kids. I call it Stump the Chump. And, they've, they, and I can always tell what they're talking about upstairs by what the questions are. They run in series, so you can tell they were talking about heaven recently because here were three of the questions. What would happen if there was no heaven? Was heaven a real uh, a thing before Jesus came to earth? And are the stuff we love going to be in heaven? Aren't those great questions? Heaven is the presence of God. Our future destiny as believers is to live with resurrected bodies in a new heaven and new earth. And if you're a Christian, and if you die before Christ's return, you will live in the presence of God, heaven, waiting for this new physical cosmos. Heaven, as we think of it, is God's presence. So our ultimate future destiny is much like our original state, living in a recreated heavens and earth in these resurrected bodies like the Lord has. But between death and the final judgment, we live in God's presence. We will in heaven. And so now as Christians living as God's kids on this planet, which is still a place in a state of rebellion against God, we live in the already not yet kingdom of God. We already have experienced eternal life. We've not yet fully experienced it as we will someday. Genesis says that we're image bearers of God. We're made in his likeness. And likeness indicates a special relationship with God. Like you look like your father. And Adam was said to have had a son in his own likeness after his own image. And so this means we have this special relationship with God that unlike the rest of creation, we directly have this family resemblance, this family connection. And we are in the family business. We are by birth heirs to the throne. We're never going to be king or queen, but we are a royal family. We were given the role of subduing the earth. We're not becoming little gods but we are living as kids of the king and our role now is to reflect his image and his work in the world. So now post-fall, after Adam, pre-return of Christ, as born-again image bearers of our Father, we are actively working to restore what's been lost. And worship of God is revealed in how we live our lives now. Worship of God is revealed in church. It's revealed in changing diapers, going to school, working at a job, suffering on hospital beds and deathbeds. Worship of God's revealed and all that. Our personal lives are being ordered by the kingdom of God. We have been born again. And as we obey God's commands, which are life themselves, we're becoming more like Christ. If we rebel against these commands, it leads to disintegrated lives. Obedience leads to integrated or whole lives. And if you look around, you can see this. If you look at your life or your friend's life, as they walk in obedience to God's commands, their lives start coming together. Not perfectly, but certainly and clearly change comes to them. It doesn't mean we're protected from bad things happening. Don't be surprised when you suffer, we're told by the apostles. Expect trouble, Jesus said. A friend I've known since 1977 lives out of town. He texted me this week. He's he's up and down guy. I, I love him a lot, but he just said, it shouldn't be this hard. It's not fair. And I texted back, Jesus literally said it was going to be hard. <laughs> and I got back a little set of prayer hands, you know. And I did pray for him. So 
we are to expect trouble and we're to expect change. We are changing interpersonally inside of us and interpersonally. Our relationships are being ordered by the kingdom as God's spirit empowers us to act like Christ towards one another. We give and forgive and we're forgiven. And this transforms friendships and families and marriages. I've seen it many, many times. At this point, someone's thinking, yeah, but I've seen Christians fall out. I've seen enemies fall apart. It is entirely possible to not live within your birthright. You can do that. You can throw it away. That's not evidence against the power of the gospel to bring change. The power is there even if we don't plug into it. There's power in those outlets over there whether you plug something into them or not. This is kingdom life now. Believe in Jesus, issuing and change lives and transform relationships. So we have the seven hard attitudes on the wall. There's more hard attitudes in the Bible, but we pick seven big ones that demonstrate this is what it looks like to live in the kingdom now. These are the kind of things that you do and you become. Transformed individual lives and interpersonal relationships. Some people believe the primary way the kingdom of God is manifest now is, is signs and wonders. I think that is entirely unbiblical, and I think that if you make it your quest, it will take you off path. And I've seen it take people off path. I've experienced in my life some miraculous, hum humanly unexplainable events, and they have weighed very little in terms of their impact on my life. Jesus over and over rebuked those who came to him because of signs and not because of the truth of who he is and the life that he offers. The signs of Jesus pointed to who he is and what he came to do. And to focus on the signs is to miss the point of them entirely. What will weigh the most in your life in terms of impact is not going to be some special experience. It's going to be the cumulative effect of single, ordinary days of walking with Jesus, messing up, fessing up, moving on. I didn't get, I didn't get anything out of reading my Bible today. You certainly did. Did you read it? Yeah, then you did. You read God's Word. And if you do that a bunch of more days, you'll be shaped by it. Now, if you said I didn't get any um, feeling out of it, who cares? Who cares? We really all don't, but we really ought to put all out of tattoos somewhere on our body, TWT. Time will tell. Time will tell. I was talking to a friend this week about a, a friend of his who I watched a podcast of, and he talked about how in a recent weekend, about... Three weeks ago, he said, my life was changed. And I told my friend jokingly, I said, unless he lost his leg or got married, his life didn't change in a weekend. Tell me that in 10 years. Tell me in 10 years your life has been changed. And, and, I'll, and I'll believe it. TWT. It's the ordinary days, weeks, years of walking with people in community. Also messing up, fessing up, moving on. I didn't get anything out of group. You certainly did. This is where his kingdom come, his will be done on earth as it is in heaven is most widely evidently seen. Christians becoming obedient to the will of God and becoming more and more free in the process. Christians living and growing relationship with each other and revealing the kingdom of God here and now. And so these are two really important words to, to understand because of the realities they describe, believe and life. And those two words are going to form our application, believe and life. Believe the gospel, live in the certainty of eternal life now. Believe the gospel that Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the only way. Say, Terry, there are so many opinions out there, so much disagreement, it's hopeless to know for certain what is true. Well, it's probably worse than you know. There are about 4,000 known religions, 
4,000. There are 43,000 Christian denominations, subgroups of Christianity, not to mention denominations of those 4,000 religions that aren't Christian. You say, well, you're not helping me at all right now. Look, the Bible's about Jesus. The gospel is the good news of Jesus. And there are not 4,000 or 43,000 options regarding Jesus. He either is or he is not who he says he is. And in the Gospel of John, seven times Jesus said, I am, followed by a descriptor. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the gate for the sheep. I am the good shepherd. And all these are the, not a. I am the resurrection, the way, truth, and the life, the true vine. And there are seven times in John's Gospel where at key moments Jesus simply says, I am. And the most profound is John 8, 58. He said, before Abraham was born, I am. This is God's covenant name. When Moses asked God, who should I tell Pharaoh has sent me? He said, tell him I am has sent you. So the Lord was either lying, he was crazy, or he is who he says he is. There are no other legitimate options. He was not a liar. He was not crazy. He is the Lord. And John says, I was an eyewitness of his glory. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched. He said, I was there. I saw the whole thing. This we proclaim to you concerning the word of life. The life appeared, we have seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. Jesus is who he says he is. It doesn't matter if there's 43,000 denominations, 4,000 religions, or 4 million. It really only matters who is Jesus and what do you do with him? Do you believe what he says? Do you believe what he says about himself? And if so, have you transferred trust from yourself to him? Do you do what believing would do? The Bible says if we confess with our mouths that Jesus is Lord, and that's not just lip service. That's a confession of allegiance. So if you join the military, you raise your hand and say, I pledge to defend the Constitution against all enemies, foreign and domestic. This is a, a, a not just I confess the facts that Jesus is Lord. I'm saying I'm in. I believe he's Lord. And I believe in my heart that God raised him from the dead. Yes, he is who he says he is. You'll be saved. So I don't know for certain, of course, but there could be, probably are some people in the room who have not given your life to Christ yet, have not received eternal life, or you're unsure about where you stand with God. And maybe you've been told you can't be sure. Well, the Bible says you certainly could be and you should be sure. Because to live your life with uncertainty about that most important of all things is not going to help you. It's not going to motivate you. So... In a minute, we're going to pray, and I'm going to give you the opportunity to pray and either just talk to God and, and tell him your concerns and questions, or if you're at the point where you do believe that Jesus Christ is who he says he is and you're ready to do what belief does, you're ready to say, I'm going to give as much as I know of myself to as much as I know of you. I transfer trust to you. You can pray that during that prayer time. You can also, of course, talk to me, talk to a friend, if you need or want more information. So that's the believe application. The life application, this is for those who have believed. So John wrote his gospel to those that would believe. He wrote his letter to those who have believed that they would have certainty, live with certainty. That's what I want to focus on now. If you've believed in Christ, if you've received eternal life, are you living with the certainty that is your inheritance? Certainty that you won't face eternal judgment. And also... 
certainty that God's Spirit is in you and at work through you right now. And this certainty is going to grow as we focus on Jesus. And I know there's lots of noise out there. There's often lots of noise in here. We're not oblivious to us. It, we're not oblivious to it. It does impact us. But the noise out there and the noise in here can't distract us. Jesus is Lord. His Spirit is in you as evidenced by your desire to be holy, to obey. This desire is from God. And you say, yeah, but I mess up a lot. But when you mess up, you have godly sorrow. Where does that come from? That's evidence of God's work in you. You have a growing love for others. You say, yeah, but people annoy me. I get it. But you feel sorry when you do. And you come back and you make things right. That's a spirit of God working in you. These aren't just learned human traits. They're the work of the Spirit in you. So don't look for showy signs of the Spirit's works. Chasing experience is a diversion from what God's doing in your life. To become like Christ, train for godliness. And the freedom and joy of obedience is the best sign of the Spirit's work in you. And then when you fail to obey and when you fail to love, the godly sorrow you experience is also a sign of the Spirit's work in you. I'm not going to belabor the point about loving one another. We focused on it last week. But self-giving love is evidence of your certainty and cause for growth and certainty. So live in the certainty of your inheritance. Live in kingdom life now. You have certainty about some really important things. You know what human history is about. It's not random. It's not directionless. It's not meaningless. My heart breaks like yours does as we watch history unfolding in tragic ways but we don't look at it like those who don't know the Lord of history. Christ is the center of it all. We don't know all that he's up to, but we have a pretty good idea of what's going on in the world. He's the center of human history. He's driving it to his purposes. And you know what you're supposed to be about with your life. You're about becoming like Christ in obedience and self-giving love. You're about being faithful. You don't have to guess. People are terrible guessers. We don't have to guess and die guessing wrong. You know. You aren't guessing. And you can live with certainty of this knowledge. You can grow that certainty. And then someday you can die with that certainty. And I don't know if you do this. It doesn't matter if you do or don't. But in rooms like this or in movie theaters or in sporting events, I will look around and I'll be struck by the fact that everybody in here, unless the Lord returns in their lifetime, is going to be dead. They're going to be dead. And I'm going to be dead. And that doesn't take away my joy. It, it fills me with perspective. Teach us to number our days aright that we would gain a heart of wisdom. Grow in certainty. And if you have the opportunity to be on a deathbed, die with certainty. So let me finish with a word on grit and grace. I want to circle back to earlier where I talked about there are those Christians who aren't living inside their birthright. The power is there, but they're not plugged into the power. Just like this guitar, if it's not plugged into the power, it's not going to produce the music. How do you keep plugging back into the power so you can live with certainty? Peter wrote, His divine power, God's divine power, has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our own knowledge of Him who's called us by His own glory and goodness. So the power is there. God's given us everything we need to live the kind of life I've been describing. And when we fail to live in the freedom of obedience 
and the freedom of love. It's not a failure of God's power, but a failure to plug into it, to engage it. It's not a grace problem at that point. It's a grip problem. So he wrote, for this reason, because the power is there, make every effort to add to your faith goodness, to goodness knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control perseverance. That's the TWT part. The perseverance godliness, and the godliness brotherly kindness, and the brotherly kindness love. Now this is not meant to induce guilt. You say, okay, now you, you, I knew it. It's all my fault. The power is there. I'm not plugging in. That's how I came in here feeling bad about myself. Now I feel worse. It's all my fault. That's not the point of Peter's passage. It's not the point of me saying it. This should produce hope. You have agency. Hopelessness is when we lose a sense of agency. Hopelessness is when I have no control over what happens. This should produce hope. In battle, the common tendency of troops who come under fire is to hunker down, to dig in. And what this means is the enemy is going to eventually find your position. Shells are going to land right on your position. And so leaders tell their troopers, get up and move forward. And that's what Peter's saying. You don't have to just lay here hoping you won't die. He's saying his divine power has given everything we need. And for that reason, you can make every effort. Your effort matters. It counts. Grace-empowered grit. So I know many of you well. I know others of you well enough to say you have reason to be certain. You do believe Jesus is the Christ. There's evidence in your life a desire to be holy. I talked to a friend this morning who was mourning the fact that he's not following Christ like he wants to, but the, the mourning, the sorrow, the desire to be like Christ is evidence of God's Spirit in him. Your love for others is clearly demonstrated in your life. This is evidence of the Holy Spirit. So be encouraged. John's tests were not to, to, to make you feel like a failure, but to say, look, they're there. They're not there perfectly, but they're there. Paul wrote that God who began his good work in you will complete it. He certainly will. And he is. So let's pray together. I'm going to pray for you. And then Rodney will give you a minute to just pray yourself. And then we're going to worship God some more together. Let me first pray for those who may have yet to have believed and received eternal life. And then I'll pray for those who have received that we would live with certainty. Father, I pray for any, anyone here this morning who is unsure about where they stand with you. And I pray that they would have assurance of eternal life. I pray that they would confess to you even now that Jesus is the Christ who died for their sins and that they would surrender their life to him, turn over control of self to him. I pray for those who have believed, that having believed, they would live with the certainty that is their birthright. They would give up chasing feelings and experiences let those things chase them, and they would chase you. They would lean in on who Jesus is and lean in on the life Jesus lived and lean in on loving like Jesus loves them. 
increase their certainty, increase my certainty. Now you take a moment and just talk to God about what's on your heart.